Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. The Exorcist, or on the science and faith of an exorcism. <laughs> right, let's talk about masturbating with crucifixes. Cru- crucifix I? Uh, no, crucifixes. Yeah. Okay. I didn't, well, no, yeah. it's a sing- it's a singular crucifix, right? So it's masturbating with a crucifix. Well, I, I was I was saying in in reference to my statement, let us, which would <laughs> indicate a plural, um, because because we have so many listeners that would that would necessitate like. Honestly, I don't I don't I don't know what the going rate of of a nice crucifix is these days. But welcome to the horror vanguard, where we talk about uh, grammar and horror movies. <laughs> yes, uh, today's film is Triple Exorcist. Um, <laughs> Um yeah, I uh I'm I'm very excited to talk about uh the film, but uh hello everybody, welcome to HV. Uh I'm John, otherwise known as the Liquid Guy, joined as always by my dear friend uh Ash. How are you doing? You know, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. You know, my my bed keeps shaking un- uncontrollably. Um, and not in a way that would make me say "Hey, oh!" afterwards. So um, I hope it's nothing. It's probably nothing, as usual. It's, it's almost certainly nothing. But what an excellent day for a podcast, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> would you like that? Uh, I would. I, I really would. <laughs> do you want to lead us into? Uh, do you want to drop in the Patreon bumper? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, hang on. There's something that I wanted to. Oh God! What did I want to do for that? God damn it! There was there was an exorcism, an exorcist quote that I wanted to use to lean into the Patreon plug, but oh well. <laughs> uh, but first, <laughs> the Patreon bumper will go here in the editing phase. That's where it'll go. This program was made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Go to Patreon.com/slash/HorrorVanguard and get access to bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Thank you. Forgive me if I don't stay around to watch. I just can't cope with freaky stuff. <laughs> as you, <laughs> as you probably guessed, everybody, we are talking about. Um, I think maybe, maybe like, we haven't done many episodes on films which we would kind of consider sort of canonical if we were constructing a canon of of horror movies in the 20th century you know me and ash would probably have all kinds of ways of problematizing what we mean by canon or what we mean by like good horror or classic horror and i think lots of our episodes do that really well um but we are talking about maybe one of the most kind of iconic horror movies uh of of contemporary american cinema we're talking about the exorcist um and now I realize quite a lot of people may not have seen The Exorcist. It's, you know, a little bit marginal, you know, kind of niche. It's it's dated. It's it's an old older film, you it's, know. You know. So, Ash, would you mind explaining for, for all of the people who clearly have never seen The Exorcist before, what is The Exorcist all about? Riding the Texas Eagle from Chicago to Yuma, I met an old man named Jack. That's the only way he ever introduced himself. Just that. Just Jack. 
He had a long white beard and scraggly white hair like a worn-out Santa Claus outside of some long-lost dime store display. When Jack would introduce his name, he would pause. Hello, nice to meet you. My name is Jack. What's yours? It wasn't a pause that comes with debating the formality of an introduction. It was the pause that comes when something has been taken away. Hey, my name is Jack, proud father of two small boys. Nice to meet you. Name's Jack, Marine Sergeant, retired. Hey there, my name is Jack, chef de cuisine at the Hotel Royale. In that pause, he opened up more than most do when they speak. It was more than a window into the soul. It was a window into a ghost town. Through that window, I saw that there wasn't something missing. There was something wishing it could come back. The man I had met that day wasn't a man possessed. It was a man dispossessed. There was a ghost rattling around in his voice. The ghost of the past. The ghost of a presence of an absence. In that long train ride setting next to this ghost town of a man, I learned that we are all haunted. It's just that some of us don't have obvious tells. We pause right before we get in the shower, or after stepping out of the train, or before we kiss our lovers goodnight. What speaks here is the ghost that is rattling around all of us, searching for a way to speak. We must embrace our hauntings, our possessions. Say howdy to your demons, for you can't deny their presence. What I learned on that long train ride to the desert was that we only have ourselves to lie to. Join us as we discuss The Exorcist. Ooh, you know what? I think you're right. I think that's... I think that's... that. This is maybe my favorite one you've ever done. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk. Let's talk about um, William Friedkin's The Exorcist. Where I think I think maybe we can maybe we should start by kind of let's do a little bit of historicizing. Let's contextualize this a little bit. He, he, well, here's a question: Do you think the film is cursed? Oh, oh yeah, mo- most assuredly. <laughs> this this will tie tie into a point that I have later. But um, the the film itself is a demonic possession. Um, com- I completely agree. Um, but like. It's become one of like those films that we talk about in in kind of horror circles. Um, actors who were connected with the production died before the film was released. Um, there was a mysterious fire on the set one day. Um, I'm trying to think of, of of kind of anything else that might have come up. Well, that and, and there's added added to the mythos. There, there, there's just all of like the um, how how Friedkin directed this. You know, like yeah. he, he he would fire a gun next to the head of actors to spook them. He he forced a young Linda Blair to to do a lot of her scenes in literally a freezer so that mm-hmm. she she would really be cold. And a lot of a lot of like um when uh the demon uh vomits pea soup all over our characters, it was originally just supposed to splash them in the chest. But then, but you know, like free, that's what Friedkin told the actors, and then it like covers their faces, it gets in their mouths, and like that was intentional so that he would get these real gross out reactions. So you've yeah, got yeah. like on, on every level, this film is like gained mythic proportions for like just just how bad people were treated on set. Uh, Jason Miller, who plays uh, Damien Karras, got into got into a massive argument with Friedkin because. Um, he used to just like fire guns on set mm-hmm. yep. because he wanted he wanted his actors on on edge, um, and 
so he said you know i'm an actor i don't need i don't need you to make me scared i can you know i'm an actor i can do this uh, and very nearly <laughs> he apparently very nearly left the production um but like maybe the most famous example of 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 this obviously linda linda blair really kind of suffered during this filming um i did as did um uh, the actor who plays Father Dyer, um, which is William O'Malley, who is a Jesuit priest, and actually probably one of the first Catholic priests to appear. He was the film's kind of spiritual consultant, and he also is, plays this little bit role. Um, and he had to get like permission from a bishop to to be in the film. So there's a very famous scene right at the end where Damien Carras uh, is uh, dying after falling down the famous stairs. Uh, on M Street in in Washington, and uh, William O'Malley runs over and asks uh, to hear his confession before he dies. And they did several takes of this, and Friedkin wasn't happy with any of them, so he took William O'Malley to one side and said, "Do you trust me?" Uh, and then slapped him incredibly hard in the face. And so, and then the take immediately after that is the one that they kept in the film. Just for the record, William Friedkin. Not a nice man to work for. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, apparently, and then there's all the stuff that um, goes on. So, um, what like the unspoken hero of The Exorcist, and the person that I wish people would talk about more, but they never really do, is Mercedes McCambridge. Uh, yes, you know, Mer- Mercedes absolutely. McCambridge is is a god tier voice actor. She's the voice of the demon possessed. Linda Blair is Mercedes McCambridge. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in, in post, a lot of the demonic sound effects are layered with uh, various animal noises and distortions, but the voice of the demon is just Mercedes McCambridge, who has a really fun name to say, by the way. And like, in order to get into that role, um, she started smoking again. Um, she was a recovered alcoholic and she started drinking again in order to kind of drive herself into this demonic zone. Yeah. And when they recorded a, a lot of her, her lines, she would put herself in the same physical condition as Linda Blair was in. So, so she would be in a recording booth strapped to a chair in, in order to emulate being strapped down to the bed. And uh, as William Friedkin tells it, apparently the recordings were so terrifying that he doesn't, he doesn't think about them. He's had nightmares about the recording sessions with her. He doesn't like listening to the reels. So like this, this I'm not surprised. Intent, this, this movie is intense on, on every single level. I, I mean, like... Friedkin actually like <coughs> like seriously hurt Linda Blair and Ellen Burstyn who plays Chris Reagan's Reagan's mother um and and this this whole thing of like you know kind of pressurizing people putting this kind of intense uh drive towards like the genuine on them is 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 I think in several instances borderline if not outright abusive of of professional actors but you're totally right it gives everything this sort of like even now you know it's a film made in the 70s if you haven't seen it or if you've not seen it in a while sit down and watch it and it it gets to you it It, hasn't aged a day no yeah this is i i mean i can't say this about movies that were made last year but this one the exorcist is just as potent today as it was the day it was released. This is like the only movie I can think of that hasn't gotten less scary despite how popular it is. Uh, and it was massively popular at the time. 
as well, right? It was it was an unexpected sleeper hit. I mean, like when when it was initially released, um, uh, they, they, it was an incredibly limited theatrical run because the studio was like, okay, like this thing was in production hell for two years. Nobody wants to see a horror movie in the dead of winter. We're just going to throw it out there. No one's going to like it. It wound up being so successful that to date, it is the single most successful R-rated horror movie when adjusted for inflation. Yeah. Or R-rated movie in general, I should say, when adjusted for inflation. Um, the, the 2017 It movie uh, uh, technically beats it out at the horror box office, but the 2017 It movie is complete trash that people have already entirely <laughs> forgotten. And, yeah. and it's just a marketing fluke that that movie made more money. There's nothing organic driving that. The Exorcist, like... When it, like The Exorcist has had so many weird impacts on culture, it's hard to wrap your head around. This is the movie that killed black exploitation. Like, like that's a, a weird side effect of The Exorcist. Inadvertently, yeah. The Exorcist took out black or was partly responsible for the end of black exploitation cinema. Like, th- this movie really is so bizarre and in how it's infected our culture. I mean, it was it's widely responsible for a massive upsurge in interest in exorcisms. Yeah. Uh, widely credited with being one of the catalysts for the so-called satanic panic of the late 70s and 80s, um, was also widely credited as as heralding like lots of people going back to Catholicism. Uh, apparently, like people people uh, over in the UK would tell stories of like midnight screenings, like emptying out, and you know if there was a church over the road, like loads of people would be going into church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, I mean, we we also have the um, angiography scene, which which Friedkin oh, has insisted at, at times was actually performed and filmed, uh, and is and has been uh, referred to as so medically accurate it was used in training courses to help people understand it, what patients might go through during the procedure. And in fact, it is kind of infamous for being more intense, or at least by some accounts, more intense than all of the demonic possession scenes in the movie. Honestly, I find that scene like just unbearable. It's it's just kind of like viscerally oppressive, um, and it's done in and it's 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 filmed and framed like a documentary. That sequence of, mm-hmm. of carotid uh, angiography, um, and you realize that like the medical technology of the seventies was just it's just brutal. It's these kind of like in it's it's got this kind of industrial heaviness to it like all the machines are enormous and kind of dwarf the body um and everything is done in this kind of really dry mechanical very straightforward but i'm not surprised that people said that that was the that was the scene in the film that like got people walking out and got people like terrified oh yeah no not not at all and like i think in in the context of the film as a whole i think it's arguably the most important scene in the entirety of the exorcist because we have so much discursive power here that's kind of hanging between materialism faith spirituality uh, uh, the treatment of people with mental disorders like in, in that angiography scene all of this stuff just crashes together and then like the cacophonous noise the yep. the blood splur- the blood spurt which which again friedman argues was real <laughs> whether or not he's just uh, he just said that to hype the movie i do not know but like <laughs> yeah it's I so mean, much this is the thing like friedkin's really good uh was really good at like 
bigging up the the movie's like impact. He was a good PR guy as well as being a very good director. Um, but what's I I think what you're saying is really important because what it pinpoints is like it would be really easy and straightforward to set up a kind of dichotomy in this film between like rational, reasonable uh, medical authority and the irrational world of faith or of religion. And that would be a really easy thing to do. But what's really interesting is that from that scene, what you get is like, medicine is not rational. <laughs> like, <laughs> me- medical, me- medicine is not is not presented as being like this perfect rational materialism it's like this at least like it's torture that they put this 12 year old child through you know it's it's violent and kind of invasive and just as kind of seemingly arbitrary as as the supernatural as the demonic i i think that's i mean like for me like this is some of the most powerful stuff in the exorcist right because like there's this crass temptation to be like oh the the exorcist the the spiritual side of this movie that's that's the backwards nonsense but but how we proceed through the angiography scene it it calls a lot of that into question and it reminds us that like so much of the medical apparatus that we have today has nothing to do with science and rationality or or vague notions of progress and has everything to do with with for-profit enterprises capitalism and often you know the very oppressive structures it exists under you know we could look at you know the the experiments conducted uh, on black americans or the abuses and indeed experiments can also conducted on people with mental disabilities like yep you know the the these these two things aren't as uh you know opposed as some might have them no yeah completely um, and it's something this film is really good at doing is going uh, all of the attempts to sort of separate those two things out to go like here is the rational world and here is the kind of world of the supernatural and the irrational and the religious and they're clearly distinct this film is really good at going actually that distinction is completely arbitrary and often just simply just doesn't exist oh no yeah totally before we get into before we get into like more discourse do you do you want to just talk about very quickly do you want to talk about some of the reasons why this film just rules <laughs> okay let, let, let's let's just have a uh, exorcist fan session begin go <laughs> uh performances all of the acting and casting is just pitch perfect uh i i think max von sidow has been has been ancient like forever <laughs> he was was just born at the birth of the cosmos as this like wizened dignified old man well so he's just amazing so so i'm going to piggyback off of that and say special effects this this movie hasn't hasn't aged a fucking day these effects still hit still fantastic still seamless and as as a point as a case in point of this max von sidow was 44 when they filmed this movie the he's not aged he's just the, not aged well, the, the close-ups we see he actually had to wear more makeup more prosthetic applications more special effects went into him than went into linda blair as the demon and that was That's to make insane. him convincingly look like an old man and the fact that everyone just thinks that max von Sydow has always been 70 years old is a testament to how good the effects are in the exorcist yeah. I, and you know they, they're all practical you know they 
they basically turned that bedroom set into an icebox. It got so cold in there one day it snowed uh, because of all the condensation from uh, people's breath would hit the incredibly cold air at the top of the room and then would just fall back down as snow. Uh, like the the practical effects are just incredibly good. And and again, the the voice acting by Mercedes McCambridge, like yep, a hundred percent, no pun intended, speaks for itself. Hey, <laughs> and then and then just just pacing thematics, everything about this movie, nothing is misplaced, nothing is excessive, nothing feels wrong. Like I I don't see this about a, a lot of movies, and I'm hesitant to ever even like consider art using these frameworks but this is a perfect film it, yeah i mean in terms of like doing precisely what a good adaptation of the book needs to do like i don't think you could adapt the book or make a film like this better than the one that we've already got no i completely agree which is why the 2021 exorcist reboot is going to be painful garbage yeah, 100%. And if it's it's going gonna, it's gonna to suck. If, if, it, if it's good at all, it's going to be entirely in spite of the fact that it's at all connected to the Exorcist franchise. Yeah. An incre- and it, just a genuinely incredible film. Um, the, the ending uh, damn near makes me uh, just break down and cry. It's, it's still so scary it's genuine like that's the that's the other thing we're talking about this like it's like a really high art piece and it it, it is incredible art but it's also really fucking scary <laughs> which is exactly what you want for a good horror movie so so for, um, me, for me the scariest stuff in supernatural horror movies is are, are the subtle moments right mm-hmm. like th- those are the ones that really really unnerve me because those are the ones that happen in my everyday life it's not every day yeah. that my head spins around 360 and I vomit, you know, pea, pea soup all over everyone I know. That happens maybe once every couple of years. But like every, every day, you know, there's some banging sound I can't identify, right? There's some, some rattling, you know, like I live in an old rickety building and that makes sense. And like I connect with those experiences. And so those moments in The Exorcist where it's just like something's shaking and you can't explain it and like oh my god like it's just so unnerving because because what because of what it builds towards and the world it's connected into there are so many of those great subtle moments though right the one i noticed the time this time that i watched it is when uh chris and, and damien come to the house for the first time and they walk up the stairs and there's the the old kind of like uh you know handyman slash butler um and he's like brandishing a chair and it is like so on edge when they come up mm-hmm. and it's just that little moment of like what's happened when we've not been there that's put him in this state of mind it's full of these like and it's all down to the performances as well i know i know we've been talking about mercedes mccambridge <laughs> just one of the one of the all-time great voice acting performances hands down um but again watching it watching it this time the thing that uh really got me was Ellen Burstyn as Chris. Mm, yeah. I just think I just think it's an incredible performance. No, I, I, I completely agree. Like like I think she 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 is really the, the character that holds the entire movie together because I think she has the most difficult role to play. You know, because oh, she yeah. she has to be the most believable character because if if Chris McNeil 
if if you don't buy um Chris McNeil as as who she is in the movie, the entire movie falls apart around her. Yeah. And it's it's like it's it the all the performances, but her especially is like it's nuanced, it's believable. Um there's a kind of like real anger behind her. And you go you're like, yeah, I believe this that this is someone dealing with their sick child. Right. And I also um like J- Jason Miller as as Father Damien Karras, like so good. So fantastically good. Um and there will be there will be lots of Damien Karras discourse uh, to come. <laughs> but here closes the Exorcist uh fan zone and we open we open the portal to the to the realm of discourse. <laughs> and what what better way to open that with Foucault? Right? Because uh, here's the thing. Damien Karras is a psychiatrist. Dun, 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 um, dun. <laughs> he, he's, he's a psychiatrist who's a Catholic priest. And that is the most Freud possible job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most Freud possible job. Uh, he's got an incredibly... Uh, he's, he's racked with guilt over his relationship with his mother. So more Freud gets layered into this uh, character. Um, I I think we we've kind of touched on this already, but maybe we can start by talking about this film and the really complicated and very thorny issue of how horror and this film in particular treats and deals with the issues of mental illness. Because I think that's really important, right? There's a lot of psych psychiatric talk in this in this film, especially in like the first hour and a half. What do you think? I mean, I, I think I think it's like it's again. This is part of the brilliance of of the Exorcist, the the, the seamless and fluid transition between, uh, you know, like the the psychological apparatus of contemporary medicine and Reagan being literally possessed by a demon. Yeah. And I think like I don't know. This goes, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. But I think for me, the big takeaway is that like this really calls into question a lot of the like power and validity of the contemporary medical apparatus and, and like you know like this this is definitely not me saying that like oh all diseases are demons your blood's just full of demons or something <laughs> but it definitely calls into question the the perceived hierarchies here and and really demands because like the situation i mean just like the situation we're in right now with coronavirus right mm-hmm. like 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 just look at how many people in america have died Right. This this isn't a logical human system built on the best possible information. This is greed. I mean, that's that's the thing, right? This 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 medical authority, it's it's not it's not something demonic that puts uh, Reagan through the carotid uh, angiography. You know that that basically a scene a torture scene. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know that's 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 medical authority done in your best possible interests. And I think, uh, you know, anyone who's been kind of chronically ill or has been uh, ill with a condition that is not diagnosed will know that like, often there feels something very kind of arbitrary about the way that medical systems and hierarchies treat you. You know, if it's if it's um, a psych- psychiatric or mental health condition, that's that's it can be even more pronounced, right? The way that you're treated by by. Uh, medical authorities or doctors can can seem really cruel and arbitrary and strange and difficult to understand um even even with the nhs in this country mental health services can can be 
like basically really capricious and it's like do you live in the right place to get the medication that you need or do you live uh are you close enough to a particular uh hospital that you can see uh, a therapist and that there's nothing kind of like but that's the authority that's held up right that's the that's the the health authority that we're supposed to go uh, yes this is correct and rational and and this film just obliterates that Right. And, I mean, like this place, I mean, this is this is a very contemporary issue that The Exorcist is grappling with that's still valid 50 odd years yeah. later. Right. Like, like, just look at all of the discourse online where it's like, oh, go see a therapist or I won't date somebody who's not seeing a therapist without acknowledging the how implicitly classist that is. Mm. And, and the fact that, like, even even in the UK where you have the NHS, like access to mental health care is still abysmal. Right, yeah. let alone in the in the United States where we do not have a healthcare system, so it's non-existent access. Yeah, it's just a it's just a kind of for-profit system that's there to extract as much value as possible. Mm-hmm. And and doesn't that whole discourse kind of individualize the, the this as well? Yes, you know? yes, absolutely. And, I mean, obviously, this is something we've talked about before, but this is something like Mark Fisher wrote extensively about with this idea of like the individualization and the responsabilization of of mental health you know uh, as if who we are is is kind of not constituted by uh you know if somebody was living uh in a house full of asbestos we would never go oh well it's that individual's fault that they've gotten you know uh lung problems that need medical help but if we're living in a system that produces, uh, you know, these these enormous amounts of kind of mental distress and anguish and depression and anxiety and and so many other things, obviously we know there's a biological component. That's that's not what we're saying. But also, this idea of like individualizing it admits the social field and its crucial role in constituting and shaping who we are as people. Yeah, you know, I I think this is like one of the most vital lessons in the exorcist too right the Mm. the demon isn't defeated through individual action it's defeated through community i mean even if we want to phrase this this movie in the parlance of defeating you know captain howdy like the the only way that's accomplished is because a, a family connects in with the local community to find resources yeah you can't do it alone yeah like there there is no other way (laughs) Uh, and that whole medical discourse, you know, uh, Chris, in those scenes with doctors, is just surrounded, just surrounded by white coats, and she's completely alone. And this is what she says, you know, like eighty doctors in the room, and none of you will help. None of you, none of you can tell me what's what's wrong. None of you will do anything. Um, it's very, it's very isolating, and it and it it kind of gives the whole first uh, half, first two thirds of the film this real kind of like kind of melancholy tragedy to it you know yeah yeah and i think that works incredibly in this movie's favor that it recognizes how disempowering the world we live in can be uh i mean that's something all of the characters are dealing with right that's something that everyone runs into in this film that you have no real uh agency we're all being disempowered um and like damien Karras is a great example because there's another uh, set of uh, kind of doctor or medical authorities in this, which is what happens to his mother. Yeah, so, yeah, that's really good to bring up. 
uh, and that's another scene that I found really difficult to watch. So Damien Karras, uh, working class kid, boxer, got a medical education because he uh, uh, became a Jesuit priest. Uh, and he, at one point after finishing, he works at, at the university as a psychiatric counselor. So what one point he walks, finishes work, walks into what looks like a kind of rough working class neighborhood to go visit his elderly mother, who is very unwell. And like, what's really interesting is there's there's no gap in the film between these two things happening, right? He goes to visit, takes care of her, has some food, checks in on mum. And like, the next thing we see is that she's uh, in hospital. She's been put in a psychiatric hospital. Um, and that's... What did you think about that scene? Because I found that scene... Like, I found that scene really hard to watch. Well, like, this is this is what makes The Exorcist work, right? It, is we're grounded in so much crushing reality. You know, like, the, the movie doesn't start with like the bed levitating and like demons flying around right like the movie onboards us with, with the crushing reality of our contemporary medical systems and yeah. like we we see that that is pervasive through throughout culture and throughout society and like you can you can really argue here that like like what what the demon is you know it isn't this this evil external force that's taken over Reagan's body it's it's just a metaphor for needing medical care under capitalism right you know yep. like like you know you know why you do this to me demi you know like his mother is inside the demon at the end of it the demon can take the voice of all of these people who suffered under this medical apparatus yeah and like it, it's a really functional through line and functional metaphor of this movie that getting medical care in the world we live in is a nightmare and and again, it's, it comes back to disempowerment, right? Because like it's 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 just it's just a really tragic scene, right? He he gets told that his mother was ill, um, and you know she was talking to the radio. Her leg's not good; she needs medical attention. Uh, and it's his uncle, so it's his it's his mother's brother who says, "Uh, by now, because the big issue is like how how do you take care of somebody who's elderly?" and needs medical care if medical care is predicated upon access to 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 capital you know he's he's a jesuit he's taken a vow of poverty and his uncle says to him if you weren't a priest you'd be a big famous psychiatrist on uh you know you'd be a big you'd be a big shot you'd be rolling in it we could take care of it properly but because of your choices because of because of your commitments this is what's happened so and then you know he has that conversation with his mother who she's 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 drugged she's sedated she's like in four point restraints tied to a bed um which again is a, is an accurate and kind of horrifying insight into how medical authorities have treated those with uh, mental illnesses for a really long time and she asks him why did you do this to me and it's just like ah oh, it's just uh, it just it's genuinely just heartbreaking it's so tragic uh and that that idea of like disempowerment and guilt runs through this whole film right absolutely and it's also deeply individualized you know like the the yes. blame the blame for everything going on with reagan is landing on chris mcneil's shoulders the blame for everything that goes wrong with you know karis's mom falls on his shoulders 
there's there's no recognition for these wider systemic forces at play here. Like there's nothing. There's that, nothing Karis could have done. Yeah. Outside yeah, outside but, of being rich. <laughs> yeah, outside of not being a priest. Um but there's this one there's this one super interesting edit um where they're outside the hospital and he's really he's kind of really angry he's really upset and he says to his uncle why did you put her in a place like this why did you do this and he says well what do you want me to do you want me to send her to a private hospital who's got the money to pay for that and we immediately smash cut basically we kind of hard cut to uh chris he's throwing a party at her massive house yep. <laughs> which has got which has got astronauts and senators <laughs> and it's like yeah, we we know who's got money. We know who could we know who could pay for it. But the whole point, I think, I really like your metaphor. Is like the whole point is like, at a certain level, your individual money doesn't matter. You know, you if we assume that money is agency in capitalism, right? If you have enough money, you can do anything. But the like this film is like a really forcible reminder that actually, no, you can't. <laughs> Because there are forces bigger than kind of economic power. Yeah, I think that's that's another one of the important takeaways of this one. So, what do you let's let's dig into that a little bit more. What do you think about that in terms of like materialism? Well, this is really interesting, right? Like this idea of like, what do we? I think often we kind of lapse into a really crude materialism, which is like a basically like a, a scientific positivism where we go like, you know, it's like the. Uh, there's a difference i think between understanding uh having a kind of more marxist or leftist understanding of materialism and a reductive uh i fucking love science richard <laughs> dawkins 2000 neil degrasse tyson levels of materialism yeah and i think it's really easy to fall into one but the whole point of this film is like uh that that binary doesn't work you know we've we've kind of touched on this 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 idea of like uh, strict physicalism only takes you so far. There's a really interesting moment where the doctors are looking at scans of Reagan's uh, brain, and like at this point, we know as an, as a, as viewers something real weird is happening, and they just go, "Hmm, yeah, nothing there, nothing there," and that 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 creates this kind of friction. Because, you know, we go, we look at these sort of physical, scientific, rationalistic people and we go, actually, there, there is something there, but you're just choosing or not able to see it because the means that you have of looking at the world are not sophisticated enough or are not kind of open-minded enough. What do, what do you think? Well, I, I think, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there, right? And like, there's always the danger that like materialism becomes this crass and strict physicality that can't see beyond itself that can't see beyond these tiny moments and the exorcist like devotes so much of its time to pulling that apart really like the first like act and a half of this movie is dedicated to systemically and slowly with multiple characters on multiple plot arcs dismantling our faith in in science and in how our, our and not science and like but because i find that like people and often people on the left fall into this trap right where we we talk about science as if it's like some disembodied thing floating out in the cosmos that's like 
a, a platonic ideal. It's a pure essence of something. But like science isn't that. Science is a human system that is trapped and embound with all other human systems, just like everything else we do. And what we're seeing in the beginning of The Exorcist here is just a slow and methodic and systemic reminder that like even the best and nicest sciences, like the science of medicine, it's still stuck inside class politics. It's still stuck inside racism. It's still stuck inside all of these other things. It's not distant or subtracted from them at all. Yes, exactly. Um, the British philosopher Mary Midgley wrote a book called Science as Salvation, which said that, like, and I, I think there's actually quite a lot to the argument, which is that this kind of, you know, very easy reductionist veneration of science as an abstract ideal actually is a kind of, like, idealist, quasi-religious thinking. And we should be very clear about what science is and can do and very clear about what it can't do or shouldn't do um, yes <laughs> you know i i but her point is very is very simple which is like it's it's a it's human practices mm -hmm. which are like all human practices and all human processes open to critique and revision and alteration um because it is not uh this kind of perfect ideal it's practiced by uh people with a certain method and way of looking at the world which often yields very positive results but can and has often been used as a tool of of violence and oppression and the justification for all kinds of uh bigotry and and uh awfulness in the world so i i completely agree i think this this the first like you say the first act and a half is about but going this this realistic world this world that you think of as nothing more than kind of flat objects with which you interact is actually if you have a kind of way of looking at things that's maybe just open to a, a new kind of significance the world around you is actually suffused with uh what we could call like imaginative potential which will fundamentally alter how you see existence. I really like that that framework of looking at that because it really, like the, the, the goal of a lot of what we should be doing <laughs> and like what we try to do on the show is to like push, push through the, these kind of simplistic and, and well-worn understandings, right? Like to, to kind of, go beyond the well-trod territory and see see what else is out there and i think that 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 really speaks to that yeah you know like the whole point of horror the whole point of horror is that like or the ordinary the mundane the seemingly insignificant is actually loaded with great potential right uh and, and you can think of this in the kind of just terms of ordinary life like you open you know we live in a kind of set routine quite a lot of the time but like We've seen, we've seen that like one day, suddenly the world as you know it just is transformed, and it's transformed by forces that we can't understand. But really, like you know, living through uh, COVID has kind of made me realize actually there's just a huge amount about living in the world that I have no real understanding of, and maybe no even capacity to kind of fully understand. You know, I don't understand epidemiology or virology or kind of any of that. And so I'm I'm trying to make sense of something the best I can. 
And so I think one of the things that horror is really good at is this kind of disruption of seeing the world as simply a given fact. You know, something that, you know, you open the window and it's there. Uh, and it is what it always has been. Horror kind of opens the window and goes, actually, here's something that you saw every day. But if we just turn how you perceive it by a degree, you'll understand that it's bigger and stranger and terrifying and, and potentially more dangerous than, you know, you ever thought. I, I, I agree. And I take it, I take it one step further. Horror doesn't just open windows. Horror possesses your body and throws you out over those windows. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, but no, yeah, like, like this whole, this whole movie is, is the act of, of sliding our necks out of Hume's guillotine in a way. <laughs> Brilliant way of putting it. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but, um, I, I think that like, you know, so speaking about like situations we don't understand, lived experiences we don't have, uh, uh, this movie does start in Iraq. Yes. Um, it, it, it's which is a weird way for this film to open, right? I mean, I, is, it's yeah, it's a strange choice. Uh, strange, strange, and unnecessary outside of kind of gross Orientalism. Uh, yes. Uh, freaking had to take an all British crew when he went over to Iraq to do the filming, uh, because at the at that time, there were no diplomatic relations between Iraq and the US. Um, so the, one, one of the conditions of uh, allowing the crew in to, to do location filming was that they would um, teach some uh, techniques to local Iraqi filmmakers, um, including how to make convincing fake blood. Uh, which is just a fun little detail that I found out <laughs> when digging into how they uh, how they did this. A uh, clap emoji. The Exorcist is internationalist praxis. <laughs> Re reach out, reach out to to your friends across the ocean and teach them basic special effects. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, there's there are there are these weird kind of ori orientalist uh, kind of tones to it, but also if we're dealing with uh, demonology if we're dealing with uh, the three biggest religions um, you know the three monotheistic religions of um, uh, Islam Christianity and Judaism you're in they, they are localized around that area historically right where did they emerge from uh, Catholicism is not an American invention <laughs> yeah. you know decidedly not decidedly not um, so I, I mean, I, I, I think it's effective because it's disorienting to the to the audience, but I, I do also think you're right. You can't, you can't escape the fact that this is very tied up in, you know, uh, the the uh, kind of orientalist adventuring uh, adventurism of, you know, archaeological digs in Nineveh um, to to find something that is old and is probably going to be sent to a museum in the states rather than. Uh, any local cultural institution. So I don't know. I find I find that opening I find that opening kind of strange, <laughs> but it's a great introduction to Max von Sydow. Well, and, and I think I think there's so Pazuzu has always been an interesting figure for me. One because like the the posture of the demon is so like the statue and the figure we see in the film, like like the iconic Pazuzu um, like bronze uh, relic. Um, 
it's so iconic right like that that's the figure that would go on to be the baphomet pose and stuff like that and like just the face like pazuzu is just it's a powerful iconography yeah but if you go back like what what uh kind of like archaeologists and historical researchers understand pazuzu to be part of is pazuzu was the king of the demon of the wind right like so so pazuzu was in charge of like uh some some bad shit he brought droughts and locust plagues but a lot of like uh stuff suggests that pazuzu was a protective figure because he was such a bad motherfucker he scared away all the other bad demons so if you could have pazuzu on your team then no one else would uh. fuck with you <laughs> in uh. an ancient religious sense so so i think that and that, that kind of ties back into the movie in a way right we're like you know captain howdy pazuzu the demon right like this figure with multiple names and multiple identities like really does represent the the failure of individualized medicine right and like the act of embracing the fact that we are a society and that we need each other in a raw sense is horrifying the fact that we live in cities that we don't know full of people that we don't know that we don't even know how to connect with is is far scarier than any demonic possession could ever hope of being but like if you got that embracing on your side if you joined a union <laughs> nothing can beat you uh i i'm genuinely in awe that you used the demon pazuzu as an as a entirely <laughs> compelling argument for collective uh organizing collective action and collective strength and I think that's beautiful. Uh, yes, uh, P- Pazuzu is all about organizing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there is a whole thing about names, which we will get onto in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps when we're talking about uh, rites and exorcism. Yeah, I, th- I think but... it's a good a good place to jump into priests and demons. Then. Yeah let's let's talk about let's talk about priests. Do you do you want uh, a fun uh, a fun Ash history fact? Yeah, let's do it. You know, you know how like deep cut. Um, you know, you know how you know how when kids are like asked by teachers and stuff like, oh, what, what's your, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? And everyone's like, oh, fireman, astronaut. I said priest. The the from a young age, the very first job I wanted, Catholic priest. Oh. So there's well, a. Was th- it the was it the chance to perform exorcisms? I mean that that was the icing. That was that was what sealed the deal for me. A one <laughs> badass robes. I, I get to hang out in Gothic cathedrals all the time. I get to yep. speak Latin like a wizard and yep. occasionally fight demons. So realistically, what I should have been saying is Constantine from DC Comics. <laughs> uh you wanted to be you wanted to be John Constantine, which I mean, frankly, who doesn't? Seriously, right? <laughs> anyway um so so i think i think the first thing that i would want to get into is something that you mentioned when we were talking about this but are the priests simply cops well i to be honest i was thinking about this and i was like that's the easy you know leftist reading right um we we could do that really easily um you know it's about expelling the outsider it's about redrawing kind of uh lines and boundaries it's about the purificate purification of the body there is a there is a disciplining function there disciplining and policing function but i also think that's a little bit too 
easy. That's a bit too kind of straightforward. And we've always tried to kind of steer away from uh, kind of reductive readings of, of, of anything in horror. And I think just go, well, yeah, they're cops, they're priests. Priests equal cops is to kind of ignore uh, the long history of Catholic liberation theology in Latin America, where priests would go into uh, revolutionary movements uh, and, you know, uh, pick up pick up a gun in cases and, and join in revolutionary struggle. It ignores, you know, the Catholic workers movement. It ignores, yeah. you know, uh, Catholic nuns who would break into military bases to, to pour blood on nuclear warheads to symbolize the, their, their potential as weapons of mass death. Peaceful protest, Christian socialism across huge swathes of Europe. So, I don't know. I think it's very tempting to just go... Um, uh, Father Marin and, and uh, Father Karras are just uh, uh, cops, but I, I think you can't say that's all they are, right? Oh, I, I 100% agree. You can't... And, and I think I think everything you said is completely accurate. And the only thing that I would add to that is like... It, it oversimplifies in the worst way, right? Because sometimes yeah. it's helpful to simplify a complex idea to, to just sell the basics. But... Um, to, to boil Marin and Karis down to like demon cops in the context of this movie specifically and in the context of our lived world, you know, like exorcist is not RIPD, right? Like, like this, this isn't, this isn't, you know, ghost cops going to go catch Pazuzu or something. It's far more complex than that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, but yeah, like, but at the same time, we can't, we can't go, there is no sort of like, like. What's interesting is that I I, I think I think uh, priests as well as a host of other kind of categories that we could flag up, often serve as uh, boundary figures, right? They they are there to kind of like instantiate sort of the edges of things, the edges of discourse. So they there is a kind of uh, policing function of a border, but right, we can't just be reductive about this. Because it, it misses so much of the subtlety of this film that especially comes out in the character of Damien Karras. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good one to point out. So what what are your thoughts on kind of our, I guess, our protagonist? You know, this is, this is one of my yeah. favorite movies don't really have protagonists. And I think The Exorcist, despite the the simplified framework of mom and priest team up to fight demon i, I don't think the exorcist is a movie <laughs> with a real protagonist yeah i i would i would probably agree with you actually like what's interesting about him is that he's one you know clearly from a working class background um you know gramsci wrote about this that like honestly like in many ways the catholic church was a potential route for social betterment you know if you're working class and come from a very poor background in italy what can you do if you want to kind of improve your condition you can you can either join the communist party or you can join the catholic church um quite a lot of european marxists will would have done both at various stages <laughs> um but like he's from a working class background and he the big problem that he has is that he doesn't have enough money um, you know, there's a kind of joke where he's, uh, you know, he's talking to another priest and he says, where did you get the money for the Shivas Regal? Did you, did you just break open the, the, the poor box? He says, no, <laughs> I stole it. <laughs> <laughs> because they're both Jesuits and they've taken a vow of poverty. Um, but it's also like, 
the reason that he can't take care of his mother is because he's a priest because he has a set of uh commitments and i find the the really interesting moment is where he's talking to his friend in the bar uh and he's just saying you know if i could get a transfer you know i can't i can't be here anymore and he says something really interesting he says i've lost i've lost my faith and i think sometimes we think of faith as a kind of intangible irrational thing but in the context of catholicism particularly faith is uh evidenced by a set of practices it's basically faith is a kind of theological term of expressing a certain way of living uh that's marked by things like confession the sacraments etc so to say that you've lost your faith is not suddenly to say that you've woken up and kind of undergone a kind of immaterial feeling what he's saying is that i don't know how to live like this anymore which makes it a kind of like existential and material problem like to say that i've lost my faith is not kind of abstract it's something that you are living through it's a material change to your condition um and i think that's what makes the ending so interesting and so powerful what do you think i i think i think the question of faith is really interesting in the context of horror mm. and horror as a religious experience yeah what do you think do you think you think you think watching a horror movie can be i i think like almost functionally like they almost always are you know because there's something you know, we horror does something unique, right? Like, like I've often I've often brought up the the horror vanguard trinity of horror, comedy, and pornography. Mm-hmm. But these are these are three cinematic genres that are first and foremost concerned with with doing something to you, right? Of, yeah. of affecting you on on a deeper level, right? And like on on levels you 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 might not even often be aware of right like why do we laugh at a particular joke we we can talk about the craft of comedy we can talk about timing punchlines you know styles of humor stuff like that but like why does a joke make you laugh why why does a ghost scare someone and not someone else right like there are deep machinations here that i think border on things that are also shared with a religious experience you know it's not a one-to-one overlap but they're they're neighbors yeah yeah what i would agree you? no i would i completely agree and i think uh the the point i was trying to make when we talk about like this sort of materialist conception of what does it mean to lose faith is that religious faith or, or catholicism and uh, christianity more broadly maybe is something that is concerned with the abstract, the immaterial, the spiritual, and the transcendent, obviously, but is also concerned with, um, in practice, this is debatable, but in its kind of theology, it's concerned with, like, how do you actually live in the world? So this is why I'm, like, I find it really interesting he says that he's lost his faith, which is, it's, it is expressing a kind of transcendent loss, but it's also, like, the way of living that I'm, I currently have is not existentially or materially functional anymore. So like your loss of faith, I think is, is maybe a kind of like, uh, 
I don't want to say like uh, something everyone could kind of understand, but I think this idea of like being in a, in a situation where you think my material conditions are kind of no longer doing what I need them to do. I don't, I don't find any existential or kind of like social satisfaction from these practices of life that I have, I think is something really common. Oh, I, I, but yeah, I completely agree with that. And I mean, like, just, just kind of like we can break apart what faith is, you know, like you were talking about, like the material reality that it's his faith is his community. It's his livelihood. It's his career. It's, it's all of the material constituent parts of his life. And it's something deeper, right? Like yeah. losing, losing your faith in, in the sense that Karis loses it is like the same as like falling out of love or something, right? It represents all of these similar functions and this kind of like deeper, more complicated emotional, psychological response that's poorly understood. Yeah. And what, and it's, it's a kind of, there's a kind of like flattening of the world, right? There's this, there's a scene where he's uh, giving communion uh in, mm, in yeah. church mm-hmm. breaks breaks the bread uh so in catholicism that is not just bread that is that's the host it is sacred it's laden with power you know that that is the body and blood of christ uh but puts it down on the on the silver platter and it's it's just bread you know it's like it's that moment of going right. Everything that you thought you could do on a day by day basis that would uh, impart kind of meaning and significance, you know, not 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 necessarily what you believe, but what you do is where I think faith is lived out. Is uh, suddenly just action. It's just stuff. It's just an object, and that that's you know, you kind of see it in his face uh, that there's this kind of like colossal sense of loss. Yeah, like this whole this movie is just like if you're watching it for the first time, you're going to be caught up in the demonic possession. But like as you as you go through more watchings of this film, you'll connect with all these other moments, all these other scenes, these other characters and what they're going through. And this whole movie is just just crushing existential defeats over and over and over for all of our characters and like it, it creates this perfect orchestration where like I, a a teenage girl throwing up pea soup, uh, you know, like every every other Exorcist movie that's that's come after this is laughable. Some of some of them yeah. are some of them are all right, but like Exorcism movies post Exorcist are just they they don't have the same bite, and that's because n- none of them have this kind of holistic setup. You know, yeah. where all of their characters are just like mired in in spiritual agony for the whole film, so that when it comes time to confront a demon, all all of our characters have already been completely unseated from the lives that they that they're used to, right? And like even like um, Chris McNeil, not especially religious, you know, um, average average woman, but she's wealthy. She's a celebrity. Yeah. She's a Hollywood yeah, star, yeah. right? You know, and and she she also has her experience mirror her and Karis are mirror characters, right? You know, Karis loses her mom to to a world that doesn't loses his mom to a world that doesn't provide healthcare, and then he loses his faith. He loses his faith in his position in life, what he's used to, his the systems he engages with. Chris McNeil is losing her daughter to a medical system Mm -hmm. that can't care for her, 
and her systems, wealth and celebrity, offer her nothing, right? These, these characters are breaking down in front of us for very similar causes. Yeah, there, there is this kind of, like, inversion. Um, and there's it's really striking that uh, Chris says, no, she's not religious, and neither mm-hmm. is Reagan. Yep. Uh, but it's, like, this idea that, like, just because just because you're not religious doesn't mean that like religious or supernatural things can't happen to you which is a really kind of provocative thing that a lot of uh horror films suggest right you know mm-hmm. you don't have to be religious or you don't have to believe in the supernatural for demons to take an interest in you which is uh one of the, you know this is why i think we can say that horror has a kind of religious aspect to it even if we're not quite sure what that religion is uh, because it go- it just takes for granted the givenness of uh, something beyond strict materialism. I, I I completely agree with that. I mean, like, even even if you don't want to take that in specifically religious terms, horror yeah. constantly insists that there are things outside of your knowledge and your experience that will come to bear a crushing weight upon you, and you will not know it when they arrive. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, and I think, so, oh, go on. Th- so this means, like, what are you going to do about it? How how do you respond to that? And not um, just and not just that as those coming events, but that as that is the condition under which we live. Yeah, you know, it, like it is fundamentally haunted. <laughs> well, I think that's that's something we we sort of kind of all disavow, right? We all we all try to push off because otherwise, how would you even get up in the morning? <laughs> but it's like. Yeah, our, our fundamental condition of life is to be uh, at risk, um, threatened by by forces which are far bigger than us, which are almost impossible for us to understand. We are haunted by things which have happened in the past and the possibility of things that might happen in the future. We we kind of cling to... Uh, I mean, one of the reasons I love this film is because it kind of makes me think about the fact that, like, you know, we think of our lives as kind of very ordinary you know like like you said chris average person you know wealthy has a kind of great job is a bit of a celebrity but in many ways is is trying to be very ordinary but even the most ordinary moments can kind of be broken open from the outside oh completely um and i think so this episode episode's starting to run long but i know i know we have to have some fun because we're a fun yes. show and we're all about having fun <laughs> So, John, take us back to the 1600s and tell us about exorcisms. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, one of the things that's interesting about this film is that it's relatively accurate in depicting what a Catholic approach to an exorcism would be. Um, the issue is, there's a couple of issues, but the issue is that when this film was made, the uh, Catholic rite um which is called of exorcisms and certain supplications. I will not try and pronounce it. it I'm not going to try and say it in Latin. Um, at that time, at the time of the film being made, the version was uh, revised in 1614. Um, the Catholic Church published a updated ritual in 1999 um, after the Ecumenical Council Vatican II in the 60s, 
all of the Catholic rites and liturgical books were revised um, and updated or um, kind of modernized in some way. And the uh, of exorcisms and certain supplications was the last one to be updated. So it... it <laughs> It's it took took them a while to get to it. Hey, you don't you don't mess with the classics, man. Yeah. Um so for a long time, uh exorcisms were happening without the direct approval um of uh priests or the Catholic Church, uh especially post Vatican so Vatican II is uh, the sixties and then you have uh uh the exorcist and a lot of kind of explosion of interest in possessions. Catholic Church has very strict rules about the conditions that they will judge an exorcism to be necessary. Um, there has to be medical involvement. It has to have the approval of a bishop um, or a senior member of the hierarchy in the Catholic Church. And so one of the big reasons that the book was kind of updated and new uh, kind of courses were put in place is because a lot of exorcisms were happening in, in from the 70s onwards without direct approval of the Catholic Church. One thing about the film that's not quite accurate is um, in the exorcism scenes, there would um, there's only two people. There's only um, uh, Father Marin and, and Damien Karras. If it were totally accurate, there would need to be four people. Uh, so according to the to the right of exorcism, there would need to be an exorcist. There would need to be an assistant who would take over if the exorcist died. Um, there has to be a doctor in the room. And there has to be a member of of uh, the uh, possessed person's family in the room as well. But generally, generally the right that's shown is broadly correct. Although in, in many ways, it's sort of like um, a dark song with the Abramalan ritual. It doesn't show you everything. Uh, and I suspect probably for similar reasons. But yeah, so it, originally it was, it, they're using a 1614 um right of exorcisms and other supplications which does include uh psalms it includes uh the lord's prayer it includes various commands and prayers in in latin uh, but they do it in, in english um in stages because there's some flexibility for the exorcist to change things as they see fit um but yeah it's it's pretty accurate it's it's generally it's pretty pretty bang on actually well, good. Good on the Exorcist for for nailing the <laughs> fundamentals there. Um, but what's an interesting thing, right, is that, and this comes up in this film quite a lot, is that individual faith doesn't really matter. So what matters is that the right is is efficacious, right? There's there is power in the in the words and the authority of being a priest. It doesn't really matter if someone like Damien Carras has lost their individual faith. Um, so it isn't a matter of how much you personally believe in the divine, in the power of Christ that can compel demons. What matters is, are the words, rites and rituals effective um, rather than it being dependent on an individual? Phenomenal <laughs> exorcism history lesson. <laughs> <laughs> but this is but this is like an important point right because like i know we were talking about this we we're talking about this in the context of like um this is a very catholic film right um it's based on a book by a, a catholic writer 
it's got a lot of Catholic priests in it. <laughs> it's very interested in Catholicism as a structure of religion. Mm-hmm. But like in a lot of like evangelical Protestantism, which is a bit more kind of mainstream in American culture, certainly, you would have to personally believe that you could cast out the demon. You would, you, mm-hmm. It would be down yeah. to you because it's a very individualistic kind of religion. You know, how much do you do you have faith? And if you don't have faith, it's not going to work. But the advantage, if you're dealing with demons, uh, I mean, if you're dealing with de- demons, you don't want an Episcopalian. You want a Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> and, As Nicole Cliff pointed out. Right. And if for, you're dealing for the love of God, do not get a Calvinist uh, exorcist. No, that no, is just a mistake. Th- <laughs> Don't don't get somebody from like Liberty University. You need <laughs> get 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 a pair of Jesuits round, and you'll be okay. <laughs> oh man! But what do you think? What do you think about this? About like the the importance of of ritual, and the kind of ritualistic nature of of what it means to try and do an exorcism. I mean, so, so we have we have like a couple discourses layered on top of each other right and i think the first and the one that is most uh uh, well-tread and critically discussed already is is the overlap between uh the the absence of adequate mental health care uh and exorcisms right because because we have we have these realities meshing into each other right like we have in our reality not the reality of the exorcist but in our reality a, a lot of people go through what reagan goes through when in reality they just need a a social system that allows for human flourishing (laughs) and not an oppressive nightmare world and so we have we have this this layer to the film that's kind of a a film in and of itself that goes over everything but i I think and another layer that's deep with that I, i think that there's a fundamental need to ritual you know for for humanity and for for the just the, the human framework of how we look at the world like we just we we are a species that does rituals and we love to make rituals even when we stop calling them rituals and and rationalize them and give them scientific terms and completely reinvent how we discuss them they're still rituals yeah i mean we can talk about them in terms of social practices right mm-hmm culture culture is not necessarily like objects it's things that we do and there is there is a ritualistic nature to it um you know that i've i've read work from like contemporary theologians you compare uh things like twitter is basically a liturgy you know there's certain things you have to say when certain events happen yeah. you respond in certain ways it's it's it has a ritual to it um and there is the advantage of ritual in the case of the exorcist is that these rituals are efficacious in and of themselves and it doesn't depend upon the individual because the individual uh you know what does father Marin say it's gonna demons lie to you they're gonna lie to you uh but they'll mix truth in with the lies uh and uh damien tries to individualize the case right he keeps going do you want me to give you some background you know i've and he goes no doesn't matter what matters is the collective practice of the ritual Mm -hmm. of course it doesn't quite work out like that because we'll get to the ending in a minute before we uh kind of maybe wrap up by talking about possession more generally but what's really (laughs) what's really interesting is like uh in retrospect a lot of catholic groups have come to really like this film 
whereas a lot of like evangelical conservative Christians still say that this film is terrible. It's really bad. <laughs> and I think that's I think that's really revealing. It's the most delicious irony. Because <laughs> what does this film say? You know, it says the Catholic Church is, is, is broadly correct. Demons exist, but they can be beaten. And the way that you do that is is through self-sacrifice. Um, so I, I'm I'm not surprised that that you know uh, Catholics generally tend to be quite uh, fond of this film. Pretty, I think pretty really on board effective. with the messaging there at the end, where Catholicism <laughs> is in fact a true religion that works. <laughs> yeah, well, that's yeah, that's the thing. It works. This is this is the big takeaway from if we're talking about rites and rituals. It works. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I definitely, I definitely appreciate the, the the subtle irony there that like, you know, like evangelical and Protestant faiths are just like you exorcist. It's got demons. Those are bad. You know, the, a little girl swears. Uh, fun sidebar about um, Linda Blair's swearing is is she, when she delivered those lines, she spoke with such conviction um, that um, uh, Max von Sydow uh, forgot all of his lines. <laughs> it blanked him to see a, a young Linda Blair swear and mean it. Because <laughs> he's he's a very sort of gentlemanly. Oh uh, oh yeah, he is he yeah. is very much uh, yeah <laughs> old fashioned sort of chap. And yeah, that must have been that must have been weird. That must have been a weird moment. Um, but yeah, you know, the, it's like the 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 ritual works, the right works. But we should talk about the ending. Um, and I wanted to know what what do you think about the ending? Um, does is it is it? I've put in our notes. I've just put happy ending in loads of inverted commas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think I think the ending of this movie is is interesting, and part of what makes The Exorcist so brilliant is that the the movie doesn't end for the characters as much as it just ends for us right yeah. we we end the movie in media res with with linda blair uh chris mcneil driving away and <laughs> chris mcneil and reagan driving away um you know and like it it ends with our characters in motion it ends with our characters moving towards future things and future goals and in new directions right like that that's the continuation of a story, right? That's not, it doesn't end for any of them. It just ends for us. And so whether or not the exorcist has a happy ending is strictly about whether or not we have had, uh, uh, some, how, however you want to quantify your happiness derived from the end of this, whether that's pleasure or satisfaction, you know, like the, the happy ending of the exorcist is, is entirely the, the weight is dumped on our shoulders at the end. Yeah. And I to be honest, I do think like good horror has to have the possibility of um for horror for it to be effective, there has to be the possibility of a world without it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why that's why you have your final survivor at the end. You know, you have to have that moment, even if it's just for a moment, where you get to think, Okay, you can you can something can come out of this that's not entirely negative. Um and that's usually an excuse nowadays for like a, a jump scare, but whatever. But <laughs> I, I actually, I find the ending really kind of powerful. You know, I oh same. It gets me. It gets me. You know, because this is someone who, 
this is this is kind of like a classic sort of religious uh um uh narrative where you go what what what's the ending the the ending is um unmediated self-sacrifice for um someone who deserves to live you know it's a it's a it's a sacrifice narrative which is kind of baked into a lot of of uh christian art for example so what does he do he takes the demon upon himself and he and is thrown out of the window to his death uh and dies after having given given his confession and presumably having uh you know that the only thing that kind of motivates that is a regaining of a kind of faith right there's a faith that kind of goes beyond normal practices of living and goes into something that you would consider to be kind of purely religious or transcendent even uh, um uh, yeah sorry, I, I, I completely agree with everything you just said like the ending for me is is so deeply moving at the end of an, the exorcist in a way that i don't think any other horror movie has ever gotten for me yeah you know like uh i'll echo your statements from earlier like like this is this is one of the greatest not just horror movies but movies ever created um but but that ending is just so immeasurably powerful right because what he gains at the end uh through his self-sacrifice is something is something more than just kind of crude faith you know he's not the ending of this movie would have been so much worse if he went back to work tomorrow as as just a normal priest doing his normal priest job and he was like i'm back at it boss (laughs) would have been so much worse but what he gains at the end is is you're absolutely right like a transcendent connection with everything that that has made his life valuable up until this point and on top of that a a justification for his actions you know in in a knowledge that like despite what his uncle was saying despite the world around him a knowledge that you know at least he tried and and like that is more valuable than gold um and what's there's another there's one final subtle moment i wanted to kind of bring up before we start wrapping things up which is where uh uh william o'malley's character comes to to see them off from the house um and chris says reagan doesn't remember anything he says well that's maybe for the best uh and so reagan gives gives the 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 father a a hug but there's this kind of just this momentary kind of look of like just real sadness on her face and it's like that's going to be the reaction she always has when she sees a priest now, right? There'll there'll be this kind of melancholy, uh, and it kind of it just it's a really subtle way of the film suggesting, right, that you know those who have been called to 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 um, uh, being priests are, end up kind of being separated, you know, either through death, uh, as happens to Marin and Karis, or through their association with those who have died those who kind of sacrifice themselves it's something that we kind of pull back from a little bit um so like you know she's going to be haunted by it she's going to be kind of like it's going to be something that kind of lingers at the end yeah yeah no no i think like to to drag another like religious system into this conversation like she's got that fake cursed look at the end she's been part of her has been dragged out of our reality and can never come back even even if she doesn't remember the specific events of being possessed, you know, her character, you know, her subconscious part of her soul will forever be entangled with this history. 
right? Yeah, it, it is, it's not something that Reagan is ever going to be able to be divorced or separated from, and that's a weight to carry forever. And that you can't, you oh, can't go ever on. go back, can you? You can't ever mm-hmm. go back. You can't ever, um, you know, I, you, if you, if you, if you have a uh, a religious experience, if you this film or this film would seem to suggest if you have a religious experience or you're possessed or maybe even both, you can't ever go back to a stage of never having known that mm-hmm. or never having experienced it. In a, in a way, you'll, you'll always have to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I think you're, I think you're completely correct in that. And like, and in my personal life, like the people that I know who are the most religious or the most anti-religious, like the most atheistic and the most materialist are all people who have had at some point, what they believed in that moment to be a religious experience or an encounter with something spiritual or supernatural, or I I don't like supernatural because that's like a a book falling off your bookcase, but, but a confrontation with the numinous, right? It, it, it marks you when it finds you and whether, whether you take that and spend the rest of your life arguing against it or spend the rest of your life uh, internalizing it and absorbing it, like it, it's something that shapes your future. Yeah. I com- I completely agree. I completely agree. I mean, maybe that's that's a good way into kind of like closing things out by talking a little bit about. I know you wanted to talk about this on a bit more of a meta level, talking about this idea of possession and this film in particular. The Exorcist is is the perfect possession and exorcism movie. Yeah, and I think that is that's we we've gotten some really good movies that have had possessions in them, you know, uh, but aren't aren't the exorcist you know like they're really good in their own right but they're so much more limited than this film and like we haven't really gotten a lot of good exorcism movies there's been a bunch of pretty all right ones and some some that are okay but they're like the exorcist set that bar untouchably high almost perfectedly high and in a way by by doing that by starting so strong with this particular subgenre um, in, in such a difficult formulation too, like in, in God knows movies have tried, but you can't clone the exorcist in the way that you can clone Halloween. No. And the, the film in and of itself becomes Captain Howdy. It becomes this demonic force and it, and it speaks to future artists, just like Captain Howdy spoke to Linda Blair, you know, whispering secrets, encouraging you in certain directions. Like this film has has fundamentally possessed and shifted our culture in a way that very few movies ever get the opportunity to do, you know. Like like just like you were saying, like this movie was single handedly responsible for a massive uh, upsurge, especially in North America, for people becoming Catholic. You know, people yeah. people changed their lives <laughs> based because upon of this, this movie. This movie has gained what religion often has, and that's mythic proportions. There are legendary rumors of of people being so frightened by this movie they had miscarriages and and news clippings of people running into churches afterwards or fainting or or bathrooms being literally so full of vomit you couldn't open the door. Yeah. Like it, or like the 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 barf bags from the movies like there's no contemporary evidence for those existing. But they're they're the rumors are so strong that you can buy a contemporary barf bag for the exorcist on eBay. <laughs> um but like that, I, I think about that. That's one of the things I think about that makes this movie so powerful is that like in its thorough exploration of faith and possession, it has in turn possessed the very art form it tried to communicate through. Yeah, I, I, I can't I couldn't agree more. Um, 
there's there's a quote that I wanted to I wanted to kind of share, which was like um an interview with Mark Mode, who's uh famous British film critic and maybe one of the foremost experts on the Exorcist as a film. And this is from his book on horror movies, and he says People talk endlessly about the damaging effects of horror movies, but too little is heard about the life-affirming power of being scared out of your mind, and in those very rare cases, out of your body. You ask me if I think there is more to this world than the grim realities of ageing, disease, and death, of mourning and loss, and I will refer you to that very first viewing of The Exorcist, during which my imagination took flight, my soul did somersaults, and the physical world melted around into nothingness. I don't think that there's a spiritual element to human life. I know it because I've experienced it firsthand and I have horror movies to thank for that. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. Ha 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 